Good evening, everyone. I'm Judy Cooper, the coordinator of public programs here at the Pratt Library. And we're pleased to see so many of you here tonight. There's so much going on in Baltimore this weekend. And um, so we're really glad that you took this opportunity to come and hear about uh, the man whose life we're really celebrating this weekend. Um, I want to ask you to pick up a copy of our news and events calendar for the fall. We have lots of great things um, going on, and we hope you'll come back and see us. I have books for sale in the back. They're um, at a discounted price of $20, and so we'll be happy to sell you one after Mark's talk, and, and he will be signing them up here at the front table. Um, so as, as you all know, this is the Star Spangled 200 weekend, and uh, we invited Mark Leibson, the historian, to come up to Baltimore and talk about his uh, new book, What So Proudly We Hailed. This is the first, I think as most of you know, is the first full-length biography of Francis Scott Key to appear in the um, last 75 years. And um, Mark ha is a resident of Northern Virginia. He uh, is, was a is a former staff writer at the Congressional Quarterly, and he's the author of eight books, including Lafayette, Desperate Engagement, Saving Monticello, Monticello and Flag. And we're really happy to have you here, Mark, to talk about Francis Scott Key and help us um, celebrate here in Baltimore the uh, Star Spangled 200. Oh, thanks, Judy. Thanks, everybody, for coming. And um, uh, it's my pleasure to do a talk tonight um, on the book that I just wrote, um, which is the first bio of Francis Scott Key since 1937. And um, I wrote the book uh, because of that. <laughs> you know, <laughs> um, I had... Um, I had written this book called Flag and American Biography, which came out in, in 05. And when I was doing the research for the book, that would be 03 and 04, uh, when it came time to write, and this book is a history of the American flag from the beginnings to 21st century. And when it came time to doing the research for the part about Key and the Star Spangled Banner, I couldn't find a current biography. That one from 1937 was the, uh, the newest one there was. So, um, you know, Four years ago, when I finished the Lafayette book, I was looking around for a topic for my next book. And I was thinking about 2014. And uh, I, the, the thought, it was one of those shower thoughts. I thought, I wonder if there was still a, another biography of Key. And sure enough, I couldn't believe it. There wasn't. I told my agent. He didn't believe me either. And then he checked. Anyway, that's sort of how the book came to be. And then... Um, uh, then I had to research and write it. So, uh, and I learned a lot about Key, and I hope I can, uh, you know, impart a little bit of that in the next uh, 25 minutes or so. Um, so everybody knows the name Francis Scott Key, and everybody knows what he did in that harbor over there 200 years ago, minus three days. But hardly anybody knows anything else about the guy. Does anybody know anything else about the guy? Yes, sir. He uh, defended slaves that were free men, but he also did something else that was not whole when they were slaves that were due to go back to their masters. He also made sure that they did. A true lawyer, right? <laughs> One day he defended a free, free black or a, runaway, or a runaway slave defending them, and the next day he represented a slave catcher. That's correct. Yes, sir. He had a very interesting career, somewhat up and down, off and on, if you want to call it that, as far as popularity goes, became district attorney for the District of Columbia. Right. On the other hand, there was a biography of the key because we had it in the fish shop of the Star Spangled Flag House, came out in 1996. Ooh. Though it's fairly small. It's a kid's book, I think. Yeah. Paradoxes of. Oh, that thing. Oh, gosh. <laughs> I don't, I'm not calling that a full-length bio. That, that's what I right. That was, had been published just like the year before, so we had it in our gift shop. So it was the most recent thing on him. Right. Um, yeah. 
So I knew I shouldn't ask that question in Baltimore. <laughs> the last time I asked it, no one, one guy, he was a lawyer, right? Yeah. Yes, sir. Yeah, Jefferson Morley is a writer for the Huffington um, Post, I think it is. Yeah. He has a large article about Springsteen. Kind of that's Snowstorm in August, yeah. That, he had, it, it's, it's about the snow riot in Washington, D.C. that Key was in the middle of. And he did more work on Key. That book came out two years ago than anybody since that full-length biography. And I, I, I talked to Morley, and he helped me with the book. He was great. So well, let me tell you a few hundred other things you don't know about Francis Scott Key. You know, he was born in, um, what's he, 1700? Yeah, that's right, 1700s. 1779, during the American Revolution. And he was born in, uh, uh, at his family farm called, pardon? called Terra Rubra, which was in, uh, then it was in Frederick County, it's now in Carroll County. It's north of Frederick, about a 20 minute drive today, not far from the Pennsylvania border. His great grandfather, Philip Key, came over here in 1720 from England. He was a lawyer, and we have lawyers in the family. Key's grandfather, Francis Key, who he was named after, his father, John Ross Key, his brother, Philip Barton Key, his um, his uncle, Philip Barton Key, sorry, uh, all lawyers, and Frank was a lawyer too. By the way, they called him Frank. Did you all know that? Now you do. From now on, we're calling him Frank Key. I didn't make it up. I didn't want to. I just started reading all the letters and uh, all the contemporary accounts. So friends and family called him Frank, so for tonight, let's call him Frank. So Frank had an idyllic childhood growing up on really what was a plantation. The family were slaveholders, um, he uh, had a sister and they had this real carefree life he was tutored at home they sent him to St. John's College when it first started and it was a primary school and you all know about St. John's College that same classroom where he studied is still that main classroom on campus today um, and so he went to primary school there and he did graduate from the college uh, when he was 17 in, in Annapolis he, he didn't have to board he lived with his great uncle Upton Scott which is the Scott part of the family. Upton Scott was uh, a physician, and the Scott house is a beautiful, huge house that's, that uh, still stands on Shipwright Street in Annapolis. It's privately owned. I did get to see it. Oh, by the way, that MPT documentary that's on tonight, it's going to be on later on the weekend. Um, I'm in it. It's called F.S. Key and the something or other. Uh, and... Um, we filmed there, so that's when I got to see it. The very kind people who owned the house let us inside for a couple of scenes in that movie. So he didn't have to board. He walked to classes, and um, he got the classical education at St. John's College. He um, stayed in Annapolis after and read law with his uncle, Philip Barton Key. So his father, John Ross Key, was also a lawyer. He did join the Continental Army and fought in the revolution. He wound up at Yorktown with Lafayette. His brother, his only brother, Philip Barton Key, Frank's uncle, was a loyalist during the revolution. And not only was he a loyalist, he joined the British army and fought against us. He was taken prisoner at the end of the war down in Florida, went to Cuba, and then he decided to go to England. You're not back to England, never been to England, but he went to England and read law there, became a pretty big lawyer there, and then he decided to come back, Philip Barton, the older, the brother, the uncle, and um, he came back to Annapolis. And, you know, loyalists who came back, you know, the reception was from tar and feathering to welcoming with open arms. Philip Barton was welcomed with hugely open arms. He just... he became a big citizen of Annapolis, he was mayor of Annapolis. He built this huge law practice. And that's where Frank read law under his, under his uncle, Philip Barton. And Frank, really, his uncle had more influence over Frank than his father did. Um, Philip Barton, just to finish it up, went to Washington. He bought a huge tract of land that we now call Woodley Park area of Washington, which is north of Georgetown. He built his house called Woodley, which still stands today on Cathedral Avenue on the campus of the Murray School. He's one of the most prominent, richest citizens of the nation's capital. So um, in 1802, Frank met 
a woman in Annapolis named Polly Lloyd. The Lloyd family, she was a daughter of Colonel Edward Lloyd of the Lloyd family, maybe the richest family in Maryland. They owned Y Plantation. You all know Y Plantation. How many thousand acres? They had hundreds of slaves. You know, they had his own schooner that he ran back and forth to Baltimore from, from, y, from y Plantation. And um, so Frank married Polly. Now, Frank was this hick from the sticks, right? He was, you know, he was from Frederick, which was out in the middle of nowhere. And, you know, Polly Key was, well, um, you know, when I read that, you know, her father had died and she and her sister moved from the plantation to the mother's, to the family townhouse in Annapolis. And, you know, I'm thinking townhouse when I'm reading it, right? You know what a townhouse looks like. Have you seen the Chase Lloyd house in Annapolis? Yeah, it's practically an entire city block right on College Avenue, right by St. John's, right by the state capitol. So it was an opulent, beautiful house that uh, Judge Chase originally bought, then he ran out and, and Colonel Lloyd bought it. So Frank Mol- Molly's Parry, I was going to say. Frank marries Polly, and he takes her back to Frederick. And, um, you know, it's not clear where they lived. They probably lived in town. It's not clear where his law office was. We just don't have the records. Believe me, we searched. But he did, have, he did practice law there for three years, and they had two children, and then they decided to make the move to Washington, D.C. And they moved there in 1805, um, and he basically took over Philip Barton, his uncle's law practice, because guess what Philip Barton Key did? He ran for Congress and won. So here is this former loyalist who becomes a three-term congressman from Montgomery County, Maryland. And Frank took over the law practice. He moved into this really nice house on Bridge Street, which is now M Street in Georgetown. Later became known as the Key Mansion. So let me tell you where the Key Mansion was. Okay? You all know the Key Bridge mm-hmm. in Washington? Drive Pardon? You drive through it. You drive through the Key Bridge? Wait a minute, let me tell the story. <laughs> I got it down here. I've told it about 40 times. He's close. So if you take the key bridge into uh, Georgetown from Roslyn, Virginia, and you make a right turn on M Street, which used to be called Bridge Street, there's a park there. It's called Francis Scott Key Park. That is not where the house was. <laughs> if you turn to your left... There's an entrance ramp onto the Whitehurst Freeway. That's where the Key Mansion was. And the way I orient it for Washington, D.C. people is it's across the street from Dixie Liquors. Oh. Everybody knows that place. So. Wait, 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 wait. How about the steps from the... Uh, yeah, that, that's right, the exorcist steps. That's correct. <laughs> this is how I orient it for people not from Washington. It's across from the exorcist steps. <laughs> so what happened was the house went out of the family... It wound up being owned by the National Park Service, and there was actually one of the first preservation movements. An association grew up in the early 1900s to save the house. It never worked. Park Service got it. They were trying to save it. Too much pressure to build that entrance ramp, so they said, reluctantly, we're going to take it down. They took it down brick by brick, board by board, and they placed it on the other side of the key bridge to be rebuilt there. (coughs) Guess what happened? Gone. Not a stick is left. So a citizens group formed and they built Francis Scott Key Park in 1992, just 1992. So the next time you're in Washington, you come over Key Bridge, hang a right. There's a little postage stamp park there. There's a bust of Key and there's historical interpretation and that's not where his house was. (laughs) So Frank and Polly, he hung up his shingle. He had a thriving law practice. He was a very good lawyer. He worked very hard. And... um, Let's just move on up to 1812. He was a very religious man. You know, he almost went into the Episcopal priesthood. And there's a letter that he wrote to whoever it was who was saying, you know, we have a, we have a priest job for you. Um, I just can't do it, he said. I have a large and growing family. I, I, I need to support them. So he, they actually wound up having 11 children. And, um, but he was very pious and very devoted to the church. And um, he was sort of like a lay minister at St. John's Episcopal Church in Georgetown, which is still there. And there's a plaque out in front that mentions his name. And he was active in two other Episcopal churches. He was a founding member of the Virginia Theological Seminary in Alexandria in 1823. And he was also 
he wasn't a founder, but he was very active in the Maryland Theological Seminary, who I think was here in Baltimore. And um, so he was a very pious individual, um, and he uh, was a very good lawyer, and he was very much, ironically enough, against the U.S. going into the War of 1812. Remember, we declared war on, on England, and he thought it was specious. He called it a lump of wickedness in a letter. And, you know, you have to think of Key as a Southerner, growing up on that plantation, a slave owner his whole life, with Southern sensibilities. Most Southerners were gung-ho for, to get into the War of 1812. Those war hawks, Henry Clay, uh, uh, what's his name? The other guy? Hello? What's his name? Well, John Randolph, no, actually, that's the point. John uh, um, John C. Calhoun is what I was thinking of. John Randolph of Roanoke, the congressman from the South, and Key were both vehemently against the war. In fact, it cost Randolph his seat in Congress. And, and, and there was a, there's a great deal of correspondence between Randolph and Key, which is where we get a lot of this good stuff. The lump of wickedness quote was in there, too. Um, and so most Northerners were against it. Key was... Uh, anyway, so he's against the war. Of course, the war happens. Um, his private law practice goes downhill when, during war. It wasn't good. And then um, he changed his mind about the war in the spring of 1813 when the British started raiding up the Chesapeake Bay in Virginia, getting a little too close for comfort. So he actually joined a Georgetown militia unit. He put on a uniform for about a week. He just, they sent him out to the Chesapeake. He didn't see any action. He didn't like being in the military, so he, he came home and took the uniform off. So he did serve, but only very briefly. Now, come up to the Battle of Bladensburg, um, and Frank showed, you know, the citizens fled uh, Washington. Polly took the kids up to Terra in Frederick. Then she came back about halfway to wait it out. Frank uh, came onto the field of battle at the Battle of Bladensburg, you know, one of America's most embarrassing military defeats, not in terms of numbers of casualties, but in terms of what happened. You know, we put the shoddy militia unit out there under an incompetent general, and they folded like a cheap suit. Now, the war had changed in, 18, in the spring of 1814 after the British defeated Napoleon, and they sent 5,000 battle-hardened crack troops. Those are the guys who marched through that 95-degree heat and just ran us over in Bladensburg. After which, what did they do? They torched Washington, D.C. I mean, how bad does it get when an enemy burns your capital? Now, the British did not burn any private dwellings in Washington. They said they were doing it in retaliation for the Americans burning York, Canada, which is now known as Toronto. And, but they burned the White House. You all know this, and the Treasury Department, and the Congressional Library, and so on. Frank fled, as did everybody else, waited in Georgetown, and then you know what happened also? There was a huge thunderstorm, maybe a hurricane, Who, you know, we don't know, but it was really bad that ended the British occupation of, of Washington. And they went back to their ships, um, and when they did, they took a couple of prisoners, including a physician named William Beans, B-E-A-N-E-S, who lived in Upper Marlboro. And Beans had himself taken a few straggler British troops prisoner in his barn. He had a big farm out there. And the Brits were not happy about that. So they took old Dr. Beans. He was in his 60s. Took him back to their ship. Um, When word got out, prisoner exchanges were common during the War of 1812 and prisoner releases. So um, word got out that Dr. Beans was taken one of Frank's brother-in-laws, William West, who married one of Polly's sisters, rode his horse to Georgetown and asked Frank to negotiate the release of Dr. Beans. Why? Because he was a, he was a good talker. He talked people into things. He was a lawyer. No anti-lawyer jokes. <laughs> Till later on in the talk. So um, um, he goes to the White House. It's not clear whether he... Act, sometimes you read that President Madison asked Frank Key to go to Georgetown. To, to Baltimore, it's not really quite clear. He, he may have, but we do know he went to the White House. General Mason, who was in charge of these kind of things, gave him his order to go up to Baltimore. And also, General Mason w- 
talked to the highest ranking British prisoner and he said, listen, you guys are being treated well, aren't you? Your men are being, their needs are taken care of, their wounds are being tended to. He said, yes, could you have your men write letters to that effect? They did. So Frank rode his horse up to Baltimore with those letters and his orders. He gets to Baltimore. He left Washington on September 2nd. He got there probably on the 4th and there he met up with a man named John Stuart Skinner. Skinner was a colonel in the army he was a young man, he was only 25, and his job was prisoner exchanges. He had done those, prisoner releases. So Key and Skinner met up here. They got on an American sloop, and they went looking for the British fleet. They found them a couple of days later. They were welcomed on board. They had lunch. They drank some wine, and they convinced the British to release Dr. Beans. We believe it was the letters that did it. And so the British said, yes, we will release Dr. Beans. However... We're not going to let you three guys go until we bomb Baltimore back to the Stone Age. (laughs) Why did the British have it in for Baltimore? They were not going to just destroy public buildings in Baltimore. They wanted to destroy the city. The reason was that Baltimore was a hotbed of war hawkism. Is that a word? (laughs) It is now. So... (laughs) they, were, they couldn't wait for this war to start. And, you know, we didn't have much of a navy when the war started, so the call went out for private ships to go and raid the British ships. They were called privateers. Guess what city led the nation in privateers? Baltimore. The Baltimore Clippers went out and wreaked havoc. The British press called Baltimore a nest of thieves. And so they were out to get Baltimore. So the... Admiral Coburn and General Ross said, you know what, you all can go off of this ship, but you can't leave the harbor till the deed is done. So they put him on a, eventually they put him back on that American sloop. Sometimes you read that Key was being held prisoner by the British during the, the bombing. You know, they weren't under decks being fed bread and water. They were, they were on the deck. They had a Marine guard or two there, but, and they couldn't go. So technically, maybe he was being held prisoner. It's sort of like, you know, filling in the blanks. So, He has a ringside seat on the Battle of Baltimore, um, which I won't go into in detail, but you know there were two components to the battle, right? North Point on land. And you know, the British were marching up toward the city and they were getting pretty close when General Ross was shot and killed off of his horse. And Ross was this charismatic leader who the men loved. And when he died, morale went down the toilet. And the man who replaced him was okay, but he was no Ross. They still continued. They got right up to the eastern gate. Now, as opposed to Washington, which was not ready for the Brits, Baltimore was ready. They could see from the high points of the city, Washington flames 35 miles away. And this was August 26th. Now we're at what? September 12th. So General Smith was not General Winder. He knew what to do. He had thousands of trained militia. They built embankments and berms. Fort McHenry was, you know, full of guns and full of men, and, and as were the auxiliary forts. So they were, plus, Armstead sunk old ships in the harbor. You know this, right? So the Brits could not get close enough so, to accurately aim. So North Point, they get right to the edge of the city. Then comes another storm, which I've heard described as a tornado, a hurricane, and last year, a derecho, which <laughs> I don't even think they invented until two years ago. But whatever, it was something. So that, Ross being killed and, and a lack of good communication from the ship to shore ended the ground portion. They camped overnight and then they came back. So the, the, the bombardment starts on the 13th. It goes 25 straight hours, 1,500 rockets, mortars, and bombs. By the way, rockets, these are the, almost the, the second or third time rockets have ever been used in warfare. They're called Congreve rockets. They had little fins on them, you know, like kind of what a rocket looks like now. They were so new, they couldn't aim them very well, but they scared the hell out of people. The rockets, red glare. Um, 1,500, maybe the longest sustained bombardment in military history to that point. And um, there were four bomb ships alone, just bomb ships in the front line. All they did was spit out 250-pound cannonballs towards Fort McHenry. Because they couldn't aim well, because they were sunk, 
you know, there was minimal damage. The, the, the houses in the city shook, shook to their foundations, but no one was killed in Baltimore, and only, believe it or not, four men were killed at Fort McHenry through this horrendous bombardment. So Frank and Dr. Beans and Skinner are watching the bombardment from the ship, and um, Frank is an amateur poet, right? He's a bad amateur poet. <laughs> Don't take my word for it. You know, he wrote a lot of poetry that was only meant for family and friends, never to be published. It was, a lot of it was published in a book after he died. You can read it on Google Books if you want to put yourself through the torture of doing that. They're not very good. Um, but he was a man who liked to write verses. So, um, you know, well, you know what happened. The, the bombing stopped. Silence at 3 a.m. It was pitch dark. Nobody know who, they didn't know who won. Nobody sent out a tweet. I mean, you know, it's just like if it had happened today, there never would have been a Star Spangled Banner because they would have said Brits lost, they're heading out. He didn't, they didn't know. So it was agonizing two or three hours, four hours before the dawn's early light. Dawn's early light comes, they look, and they see a flag hanging limply. Don't forget there was a storm that night. That flag is taken down and a new 32 by 40 foot flag is put up and a little breeze comes and our flag was still there and Frank is moved to write down some verses on the back of a letter, not an envelope because envelopes weren't invented yet, a letter in his pocket. The Brits let him go. They go back to town. He goes to a hotel and he writes, he polishes and writes three more verses. Now, what happens next is a little cloudy because... Francis Scott Key only spoke in public about that night once in 1834. And um, as far as writing letters are concerned, I couldn't find but one letter, nor has anyone else who's ever studied found anything that Key wrote about that night. And the one letter he wrote to John Randolph on October 4th, he doesn't even mention writing the words that became the Star Spangled. He talks about the British and getting Dr. Beans. So how do we know what happened? Okay, the account that we have that you all read about was written in a book in 1853, 10 years after Frank died, by who wrote it? His brother-in-law, Roger B. Tawney. You know, Roger B. Tawney, Chief Justice of the United States, was Francis Scott Key's brother-in-law. He married Frank's only sister. They were very close friends. They read law together in Annapolis. They went to Frederick together. They didn't practice law together, but they, they, they did cases together. And uh, so Tawny was Key's close friend. The family's vacationed together, and, and he was a colleague. He wrote in a book this 5,000-word description of what happened based, he said, on what Frank told him after the battle. And um, I'm sorry. Otherwise, I might not have much left after this. So um, think about it. 1853, that's 40 years after the fact. Even if it is what Frank told him. You know, historians are very leery of memoirs that are written years and years after the fact, much less secondhand memoirs. So, but this is all we have to go on. And we can double-check with say, contemporary newspapers and what other people wrote in letters. So we're pretty much certain what happened with a few big question marks. We believe that he gave his manuscript to his brother-in-law, Judge Nicholson, Joseph Hopper Nicholson, who had fought at Fort McHenry. We believe that Nicholson took it to a printer, Carr's print shop, and because we know that two days later or the next day, after the day, after whatever, the 15th, 16th, it, it appeared on broadsheets, which were sent all over the city, including to the guys at Fort McHenry. And what did it say? It, the title of it was The Defense of Fort McHenry, no name for no author on it. And then it said it was to be sung to the tune of two Anacreon in heaven. And then it wasn't until November that, that these words appeared on sheet music with the new title, Star Spangled Banner, with the, 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 the tune of To Anacreon in Heaven. So what is To Anacreon in Heaven? It was the theme song of the Anacreontic Society. What was the Anacreontic Society? It was a group of English gentlemen 
who, it was kind of like a highfalutin book club. They would meet periodically to discuss literature and events of the day. They met in taverns, they did drink, and they did eat. So you, you always hear, right, it's an English drinking song. I'm here to tell you, it was not 99 bottles of beer on the wall type <laughs> drinking song, okay? It was a little more high-minded than that. So keep that in mind the next time somebody tells you that our, our national anthem is to the tune of an English drinking song. And here's another thing. Back in the early 1800s, it was common for people to write words and morph them onto existing tunes. And guess which tune was among the most popular? To Anacreon in Heaven. Da, 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 da. The, the, the musicologists who studied this have found 50, 60, 75 songs that uh, were put on to this tune, including a very popular one that Key knew and that everybody knew. So the other thing about Key and writing the Star Spangled Banner, the family described Frank as unmusical. To my mind, that could possibly mean tone deaf. So here we have a man who was possibly tone deaf writing a song that probably, well, all of us know it like we know the words to happy birthday. So have hundreds of millions of other Americans. It's sort of kind of a little bit ironic. And the other final point about that is that um, until relatively recently, I'm talking about the last two or three years, it was believed that Frank was writing a poem, not a song that night. Why? Because he was an amateur poet, because he was unmusical. He never wrote a song in his life. He did write two Episcopal hymns that are in the Episcopal hymn book, but he really never wrote a song. So it was, and because he was a poet, it was assumed that he was writing poetry. But the people who study this have convinced me and just about everyone else that he must have been writing a song that night. Even though he never, you know, there's no primary evidence, but putting all of the evidence together. One, he knew that tune. Everybody knew that tune, musical or not. Two, the song, the words he wrote were exactly in rhyme and meter to, to Anacreon in heaven. That couldn't have been a coincidence. And the third thing is that in 1805, you know, nine years earlier, there was a banquet given in Georgetown for Stephen Decatur, the hero of the Tripolitan War, in Georgetown. And on the occasion, a gentleman lawyer from Georgetown presented a poem in honor of Stephen Decatur. You can, I, you can read the newspaper account, a contemporary, that day. It said, and it was sung to the tune of, to Anacreon in heaven, and it had the word star-spangled flag. So, and Frank wrote it. So putting all that together, we now firmly believe, as best we could without any smoking gun, that he was writing a song, not a poem that night. So, and, um, you know, it, it, it became known throughout the nation. It was, it was printed in sheet music in November. It was in newspapers all around the country. And um, it was, but it was just one of, several patriotic airs, including Yankee Doodle, that were played on Fourth of July and other patriotic occasions. And it, during the Civil War, it became sort of the de facto national anthem of the North, although it was competing against the Battle Hymn of the Republic and Rally Around the Flag Boys. Um, and it didn't become the national anthem officially until 1931. God bless you. Um, and we can talk about that a little bit later. But So that's the story of the Star Spangled Banner. Now, Frank was only 35 years old when he wrote the Star Spangled Banner. He died in 1843 when he was you know, 64, in the 64th year. He was an important personage in the early republic. This is the part that just people don't know, although it's all out there. Um, he comes back, you know, um, his practice starts booming again. He becomes a big lawyer in town. He winds up arguing over 100 cases before the U.S. Supreme Court. Um, he was apolitical. He said he hated people, wanted him to run for office. He never did. Uh, he, he just didn't like politics because he thought it was too partisan. I don't know where he got that idea. <laughs> but um, he changed his mind um, in 1828 and became an ardent supporter of Andrew Jackson. You know, he was a tepid Whig until then. He went full bore for Jacksonian democracy. One reason, we, you know, he never really spelled it out in anything that, w that we have found yet. So we have to sort of put two and two together. But one reason was his brother-in-law, Tawny, was... Jackson's Maryland campaign manager. 
and Frank did help with the campaign. And he was enamored of Jackson. They couldn't have been more different. I mean, here was this erudite lawyer who spoke Greek and Latin, who was well-lettered. You read his letters, there's Latin, Greek, very religious man, and there's Andrew Jackson, you know, the, the Indian fighter. The, he was barely lettered. Read Jackson's letters. He needed spell check. Andy Jackson needed spell check. Um, anyway, but they hit it off, and Jackson became, and, and Key became one of Jackson's most trusted advisors. You know, he was a member of Jackson's kitchen cabinet. What's the kitchen cabinet? Informal advisors outside of the, Jackson was the seventh U.S. president, but he was the first president who was not born in Virginia or Massachusetts. He was, from, he was an outsider. He was from Tennessee. Tennessee was outside. So he was warned when he came to Washington. Now, he had been a senator, but he was warned when he came to take over the government, he had better you know, appoint insiders to the cabinet positions, which he did, except for two. But he brought his closest friends and advisors into what was called a kitchen cabinet. And you know, the term kitchen cabinet was first used at this point. It was a derogatory term because, think about it, kitchens. Where did a real cabinet meet in a nice room like this? The kitchen cabinet, you know, kitchens weren't even in the houses. They were, or if they were, they were in the basement. So it's not a derogatory term now, but it was then. Key was, a, was an important member of Jackson's kitchen cabinet. They often met at the Key Mansion on Bridge Street. And he advised Jackson on legal matters. And um, Jackson uh, favored him by appointing him U.S. attorney for Washington in 1833, a post he held for eight years. And uh, he kept his private law practice while he was prosecuting attorney of the District of Columbia. And it was practically a one-man show. He worked morning, noon, and night. They didn't really have conflict of interest stuff going on back then. In fact, Tawney, you know, Jackson uh, wanted to reward Tawney by making him attorney general of the United States. And Tawney had a thriving law practice in Baltimore. And he wrote a letter to Frank, and he said, what should I do? I, I, I have this big practice. Frank said, I don't worry about it. You can do both. And he did. He went to Washington once a week to be U.S. Attorney General and kept his law practice here. So um, Frank was a U.S. Attorney. He was involved in a lot of high-profile cases. I'll just tell you about one of them to save time. Um, In 1835, the first attempted presidential assassination, a man named Lawrence walked up to Andrew Jackson on the steps of Capitol Hill, pulled out a pistol, fired point-blank range, and it misfired. He pulled out a second pistol, and it misfired, at which point 65-year-old Andrew Jackson started beating the crap out of the guy with his cane. (laughs) They had to pull him away. They pulled him away, and they took him to be indicted, and Francis Scott Key was the district attorney. He indicted him, and the man started raving about how he was the king of England, and he had been appointed by God, and Frank realized he was mentally ill, and Jackson would not hear of it. Jackson wanted this guy, he saw a conspiracy. He wanted to root out the conspiracy and he wanted to prosecute this guy to the full extent of the law. Frank, to his credit, you know, when it came time for a jury summation, he said, ladies and gentlemen of the jury, if you find that this man who thinks he's the king of England was insane, you do not have to convict. And in fact, they convicted him at a reason of insanity. So that was one of his high moments. As we said earlier, he was known in his private practice for representing free blacks and slaves in the courts for free in Washington, D.C. So, which brings us to the issue of slavery. When you're talking about an important player, which Frank was in the early republic, who was involved in national issues, you cannot get away from the issue of slavery. You just can't. It, it, in some ways, it all leads up to 1861. You know, Every time a new state came into the union, remember the Missouri Compromise, all that stuff. So... Frank was a very pious man, very religious. He spoke out strongly against the evils of slavery. If you read his statements on slavery alone, he almost sounds like an abolitionist. And believe me, he was not an abolitionist. He also was against slave trafficking. Remember, international slave trafficking had been illegal since 1808. Of course, slavery interior was still legal in the United States. So Frank's answer to... Ending slave trafficking and ending slavery eventually was colonization. And to that effect, he was a founding member and one of the strongest supporters for the rest of his life of the American Colonization Society, which formed in Washington in 1816. What was the American Colonization Society? It was designed to send 
free blacks to Africa, to a new colony in West Africa. Not slaves. In their founding document, they practically underlined it and put it in bold, free blacks only. And so it was not, and this is, of course, became the colony of Liberia and the current nation of Liberia. So this was not a very popular idea among lots of free blacks, and it was not a very popular idea among, the, in fact, the abolitionists hated it. So Frank and the abolitionists did not get along very well. Even though if you read what he said about slavery, t- calling it an evil and so on, you know, so you cannot get away from the issue. You know, he, he owned slaves his entire life. He did free three or four of his slaves during his lifetime. Um, but when he died, he, he willed his slaves to his wife and told Polly she could free them if she wanted to. She did not. And so it's an issue that you just you may not want to talk about it, but you have to deal with it when you're dealing with Francis Scott Key. So um, that's part of his legacy. But of course, you know, the main legacy is those words that he wrote that we all know by heart. Uh, not very far from here on the night of September 13th, 14th. Two other quick parts of the Francis Scott Key legacy as far as descendants are concerned. You, you may have heard of his son, Philip Barton Key, who was named after his uncle. One of the first big sex scandals in Washington, D.C. He was also a U.S. attorney. He was having an open, he was a widower, but he was having an open affair with the young wife of a congressman named Sickles, and Sickles decided he would shoot him dead in Lafayette Square, in Lafayette Park. Boom, he did. And Sickles uh, was tried, and he was acquitted by reason of temporary insanity, the first temporary insanity defense in the United States, and then went on to be a, sort of a noted Civil War general. So that's, that's Philip Barton, the younger. And then, of course, the novelist, Francis Scott Key Fitzgerald, was a descendant of Frank Key. Not direct, but he was a great, great, great grandnephew, something like that. Um, and then there's those words, you know, what so proudly we hailed is in there somewhere. So that's about all I can talk before my voice is gone. So I want to thank you very much for coming out here tonight. And we have time for questions. Yes, sir. Can I ask you a question? Tawny, who was a friend of Francis Frank, was, was, wasn't he the judge... Involved in the Dred Scott decision? That is correct. uh, Roger Booktawney wrote the Dred Scott decision, maybe the worst decision in the whole history of the entire Supreme Court. That was after Frank died. We'd like for you to uh, use the microphone to ask your questions because uh, we are taping this program for podcasting later. I thought we were on C-SPAN. I hear okay. Well, same principle. Yes. Um, in the Star Spangled Banner, the third stanza, the word slave is mentioned. Right. And at the end of each paragraph or stanza, stanza it says, in the, over the land of the free. I find that a contradiction. Can you comment on that? Yeah, absolutely. He makes a reference to the hireling and the slave in the third verse. Not a complimentary reference. And what he was talking about was, you know, during the Revolutionary War and the War of 1812, the Brits put out the word, all slaves, come to the Brits, we will free you, which they did. About 3,000 slaves in Virginia and points south came to the British fleet when they were in in, uh, the Chesapeake and joined the British and received their freedom. Frank was not very happy about that, and he he mentioned it in the in the Star Spangled Banner, the third verse, that we you know, were four verses, we never hear, or rarely if ever hear, the second, third, and fourth verse. Yeah, how about it? The land of the free and the home of the brave. It speaks for itself. Absolutely. With the advantage of having all the uh, uh, letters and correspondence that might have been available, had you ever, and of course, um, Frank Key uh, died right across the street from our Washington Monument at the site of what's now Mount Vernon Place Church, his daughter's home. Did you ever come across any occasion where he came to Baltimore very frequently? Did he ever go to any of the sites, for example, like North Point or Fort McHenry? Did he ever 
ever any mention of meeting any of the protagonists as far as the American uh, generals and officers. Uh, two or three of the British lasted uh, up until the 1850s and the 1860s. So I can imagine what they must be like hearing this song often over in Britain, Coburn and Cochrane and, and some of the others. But that would be kind of interesting. But did he have any kind of like relationship with seeing any of the sites in Baltimore? The Brits are kind of fascinated with our national anthem. You know, I've been following it since I've been writing this book, and there's, you know, every couple of weeks this year there's been an article in some British newspaper about telling the Brits about it. Well, the reason he died here is because his oldest daughter, Elizabeth, married a Howard, and they lived up here, and he was visiting her in 1843 when he died, and they buried him here. Then they, what do you, what's that term of digging somebody? Disinterred him and reinterred him in Frederick at Mount Olivet Cemetery. Actually, they put him in a corner of the cemetery, and then they realized, I think at the 150th, this will not do, so they put up that big uh, monument to him there. So he did visit Baltimore regularly because it was his oldest daughter who was here, and he was close to Howard, uh, his his son-in-law. And uh, at least several occasions, he came up here on American Colonization Society business, they started a chapter here in Baltimore that Howard was the head of. Um, the frustrating thing about Key and trying to find out details of his personal life from his letters, he wrote lots of letters. He was a lawyer. Can I do an anti-lawyer joke now? No, sorry, just kidding. His, his letters are, you know, I read them three blocks from here. You know, They're in the Maryland Historical Society. First of all, he had bad handwriting. Nobody tells you about this, about research. I mean, it's just like you just stare at a sentence for 15 minutes. And then, you know, after reading all these letters for months, you can, I can figure out stuff. But anyway, bad handwriting, mostly about legal cases. And, you know, yes, he did criminal work, and he did, but he did a lot of, how should I put this, not the most sexy, you know, wills, estates, trust, real estate, and get details and details of this. So uh, unhappily for me, there weren't a lot of personal details in these letters. So um, he did have a daughter who um, uh, married and moved to North Carolina. And so there's a lot of letters that are personal in nature. The other thing about Frank's letters, when he got personal, he got religious. I mean, he was re- every letter had something about quotes from the Bible follow, and he was pretty fundamentalist for an Episcopalian. Um, and uh, just, just kidding. <laughs> no, he, he was pretty, he was very pious man. So I wish there were more, but I, I, and I didn't come across anything like that, him meeting any of the, the Brits. Yeah. Don't be shy. This is only going to be on podcast for eternity. Is there anything at the Museum Visitor Center at Fort McHenry that you have found to be inaccurate? Uh, my book is being sold there. <laughs> <laughs> no, they're good. The, the guys at Fort McHenry are great. I mean, I'm sure you've heard Scott Sheeds and Vince Vey. They are amazing. Um, I've listened very carefully to their presentations. They got it. They have it really well. And they like my book, they've said. And uh, I, you probably heard this, but um, Scott Sheeds, somebody asked him how things were going this week. He said, you know, this, is, this 200th anniversary, it's more complicated than the war was. <laughs> I think they're going to be ready for next week. Over here. Oh, what about his other poetry? Did, did, you, re- did you read his, much of his other poetry? Was there a lot of it? And... Uh, does any of it give us any more insight into him? Or Yes, I did read it. <laughs> I want you to go home and read it tonight. Go, go on Google Books and search Francis Scott Key Poetry. It just was, it, it, it was just not good. And, you know, he never meant for it to go beyond family and friends. He did write one erotic poem that is not in that book, uh, but, and it's not in the biography. Well, actually, it is in the biography from 19... The biography in 1937 was pretty good. Didn't have a lot of... Didn't do much sources, but it was so 
hagiographic. I mean, every page, Frank was handsome, thrifty, brave, clean, and reverent, and so were all of his family members. So he, anyway, yeah, he, he probably wrote this one um, erotic poem, but the rest of it, you know, just, and I'm not a literary scholar, but I think I know what, yeah, so you have an assignment tonight if you want to put yourself through it. I'm, I'm just curious. Um, you talked about the um, evolution or how you came across this topic. Um, did you do it with an eye on these activities this weekend and the anniversary, or was it just uh, The answer to that question is yes. <laughs> well, n- not specifically that, Steve, but um, I, when it came time to think about my next book, which was 2010, I was thinking of the year 2014. And I was actually thinking about, I've written more about World War I than the early Republic. And, you know, 1914 was one of the crucial years in the history of the world. And so I started looking into it. Man, I mean, there's just Barbara Tuckman's book, Alexander Solzhenitsyn, you know, I mean, it's like an enemy. So I just thought, wait a minute, what about 1814? And then I remembered, I had that shower thought that I hadn't, I, you know, I hadn't seen a, a new bio of Key, and I was shocked that there wasn't. So, yeah, definitely. I mean, the timing of the the book came out in June, so we got a little bit of buzz around Fourth of July, and um, I can't tell you how what my week is like <laughs> this week. But um, oh, I'm going to be on CBS Saturday morning <laughs> for three and a half minutes on Saturday. So eight fifteen, set your DVRs. I believe I won't say anything I didn't say tonight, but, you know, you never know. So, Did you have one more? Let's make this the last one so we have time for book signing. Thank you. Um, I do have a comment. Um, General Ross, his invasion down at North Point, there were two young men that quoted shot him as well as the McComas. Is that right? And also, what I want to ask you was the flag that was raised over Fort McHenry. Was that made by Mary's Mary Pickerskill. Pickerskill? Yeah. She's the real Betsy Ross, right? The Betsy Ross story's made up. I think you know that. But we have the bill of sale for both, the, right over there at the Flag House Museum. Mary Pickerskill and a team, you know, she had other women working with her, but she, she, she did it. And um, by the way, you know, the flag, that's the Star Spangled Banner that's, that's in the American History Museum in Washington. A third of it is missing. Everybody assumes bombs, rockets. That's not how a third, that flag was not up during the battle. It was too big. It took 11 men to, to haul it up. It was raised, you know, at the end of the battle. Do you know why a third of it is missing? Snippings, snippings, right. The, yes, the, the Armstead family took it and people said, oh, we heard you have the flag. Okay. So they, they, gave, they gave snippings out. It was a common practice in the 19th century. You know, I wrote this book called Saving Monticello, which is the history of Jefferson's house. And um, his tomb, people came to Jefferson's tomb and took chippings off of it, so much so that Congress had to buy a new one for the family in 1875. And they also took chippings from plaster inside the house. But that's another story. So we have a few books there I'd be happy to sign for people. So Great. thank Thanks you. Thanks so much, Mark. Thank you.